1: Welcome to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Every week, Josh will teach you ways to help manage, risk, and protect your retirement income in the new economy. The primary focus at Aptus Wealth is to provide flexible planning strategies that can efficiently achieve your long term retirement goals.
2: Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into the meat and potatoes about the market, Josh, if listeners would like a second opinion on their portfolios from you, if you would like Josh to check it over, see how you are doing, you can take the Aptus Blueprint Challenge. You can schedule a 15-minute call with Josh, and you'll get a $25 gift card to support our local community. The number is 614-364-7300, 614-364-7300. The limit is $1 per household. And this works the best for portfolios of $250,000 and up. This week, we are featuring some of the most memorable segments from the Aptis Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. Here's another listener favorite from the Aptis Audio Archives. We're going to start off this week talking about Roth IRAs. Does converting to a Roth right now make sense for someone who's close to retirement? Or what's your opinion on that?
0: Well, I think first we got to, let's just revisit what a Roth IRA is. So there's two types of IRAs, traditional IRA, which is uh, the huge benefit is you save taxes today. Every dollar you contribute into a traditional IRA goes in pre-tax. It grows tax deferred, but then every dollar you pull out of a traditional IRA is taxable. A Roth IRA is almost the exact opposite with the exception of the middle part, which it's still tax deferred. So you put in after-tax dollars that money grows tax, de- tax deferred, but then every dollar, including all the gains that you uh, received over all of those years, are pulled out tax-free. The challenge of uh, doing a conversion, which we hear a lot about, is I'd like to do a Roth conversion, is taking traditional IRA dollars and moving them to Roth IRA dollars. There's obviously a huge advantage to doing that in the the finality and the outcome of it, meaning that we now have tax-free dollars, but the problem is always I have to pay taxes on the monies that I move from my traditional IRA to my Roth IRA, and does that make sense? And uh, we've had two things occur in the economy that might point more towards it making sense now. And that is one, the CARES Act, and two, just the economy and the stock market in general. If you think about it, if we're going to keep these long-term dollars, we know that the stock market goes up, it goes down, and then it goes back up again over a long period of time. Well, we've certainly had a tremendous amount of volatility and the stock market is still off by you know double digits, so you would be converting the same amount of shares of stock, but at a lesser dollar amount obviously if if you're off ten or maybe even twenty percent and you convert a hundred thousand, well, now you're converting it and only paying taxes on eighty or ninety thousand so there's an advantage there, obviously, I'd prefer the other where we don't have we haven't lost any money, but since we're in this position, it does open up a, a tremendous opportunity. The other is the CARES Act and the CARES Act. Uh, affected how we can pass qualified dollars to our beneficiaries. and in the past, if you had a traditional IRA, your beneficiaries could defer the tax uh, the taxable outcome of that, meaning that let's say you had a million dollars in an IRA and you leave that to a benefit to your to your kid or whomever. They had the rest of their life they could defer those taxes over taking a small income stream for the remainder of their life and only paying taxes on the income stream rather than getting hit with this. You know, I took a million-dollar lump sum, and I have to pay taxes on a million dollars. The CARES Act changed all of that, and now we have to take those distributions over a 10-year period. So we essentially have to pay the taxes over a 10-year window, not to exceed 10 years. So uh, Roth IRAs are not subject to that. So not only do we have better tax treatment in the long run on all the money that we uh, receive, but it also favors our beneficiaries. So we have two things again. Number one, uh, we're converting uh, depreciated assets, if you want to call it that, uh, or at least the market's down, we're converting less money. So the tax, hit's going to be less today. And then secondly, the tax burden on our beneficiaries, they have more choices and we have more choices because we won't have to take minimum required distributions off of a Roth IRA as well. And there's no doubt, Diane, that, uh, everyone I talk to is saying, you know, who's going to pay for all of these stimulus packages that we've been going through over the last month and a half or two months. Um, you know, ultimately that money's going to have to come from somewhere. And uh, the general belief is that taxes are probably going to go up. And if they're not going to go up, uh, they're most likely not going down, or at least staying where they are going up. So if you believe that, then we can do uh, math, a uh, math calculation essentially and say, would we rather pay taxes on assets today at the 12% bracket, for example, or when minimum required distributions hit or when these monies go to our kids then they're going to have to pay 20 or 25% in taxes on the same dollars, which makes more sense. Um, and it's an easier math calculation in today's environment than it was, say, two years ago. So there's a potentially huge advantage to doing Roth conversions today. The trick is, does it make sense? And you have to do uh, a little bit of research, a little bit of math, and everybody's situation is different. So highly recommend that uh, you reach out to your your financial advisor, your investment advisor, reach out to my office, and find out if it makes sense for you.
2: And the number to your office is 614-364-7300. Again, that number is 614-364-7300. If you have concerns about the market, if you'd like to learn new strategies to manage your retirement risks, give Josh's office a call. The website is aptuswealth.com. It's spelled A-P-T-U-S wealth.com. So still with the Roth IRAs, Josh, in your team, you have access to great tax accountants and it's kind of like a collaboration. Let's say if a new client comes in or your existing clients and they're like, should we convert that? Not only can you do the calculations, but you also have tax experts so that people make the best decisions for themselves.
0: Of course. Yeah. And, and they're not always required, um, you know, particularly for a Roth IRA conversion, unless your situation is uh, very complex. Uh, most often times something that uh, you know I can do easily in my office but you know now might be a great time Um, and you know particularly uh, if you're in a situation where you know maybe even it's a low-income year for you maybe you recently retired um, you got that stimulus check and that was a a cash infusion that you weren't expecting well you could use the fact that you have this tax-free income to turn around and convert some of your traditional IRA to a Roth IRA without adversely affecting your tax situation So it's important in life, I think, and and even in finance, that uh, every time there's a negative scenario, you have to find the positive somewhere. You know, we're in a low interest rate environment. What does that mean? Well, it it means that maybe I could refine my mortgage. That would be a good uh, opportunity because interest rates are so low. Or we're in a low interest rate environment. Maybe I should point uh, my investment uh, strategy more towards dividends for income or you know, there's always uh, opportunities out there. It's not a bull and bear mark, It's not a bull market and everything, and it's not a bear market and everything. And you have to take every day as an opportunity to better your scenario in the long run. And one of those opportunities, for sure, is that Roth IRA conversion,
2: Diane. And you're you mentioned if you're having a low income year, that's obviously the best time to do that.
0: Yeah, it, typically uh, there's there's two times that I I recommend that really three times I guess that I recommend that people really seriously investigate Roth IRA conversions. Um, number one is anytime there's a pullback in the market because it's you know assets that we can convert again still have the same amount of shares still firmly believe that those shares are going to come back. Obviously, if if you think that you're invested in something poorly, this this is not a good approach for you. If you believe you're invested correctly, but those assets have pulled back, you're able to convert those assets at a much lower basis. So that that makes a tremendous amount of sense, and we're in that environment right now and have been for quite some time. Number two is typically the time from when you retire to the time you reach minimum required distributions, which is now age 72. So you retired 65, you have all the way until 72. For most folks, that is typically the best time to start looking at Roth conversions. You're usually in, a, in an environment where you're maybe living off of social security, which has some tax favorable treatment. Um, you no longer have that high gross level of income, maybe the same level of net income, but you have more flexibility in how and when you take your income. Great time to do Roth conversions. And then the last one is, you now let's say you get furloughed from a job. You still have enough cash assets to satisfy your income needs for a long period of time. The forecasts for your job are are strong. Maybe, you know, you're just temporarily laid off and you're going to go back to work. Uh, but it is a time where your taxable income is going to be lower than it is normally. Uh, that's a time where it may make a lot of sense to do a Roth conversion. Certainly all three of these, while it might not make sense to do it, it definitely makes sense to investigate whether or not you should do it. And, uh, the way that you do that is you either know all of the strategies involved in doing it, you know the methodology and why you'd want to do it or not, or you find somebody who does. And I think we've talked about this time and time again, Diane. It's, uh, the easiest way to get that information uh, via Crash Course is find an investment advisor that has a fiduciary responsibility uh, role and uh, have them crunch the numbers for you.
2: You do the Aptis Retirement Blueprint process. So looking at whether someone should convert to a Roth IRA would be um, part of the process. So let's go through the steps when you're meeting uh, a new client or a potential client. Let's walk through the process. Sure. Well,
0: the first one is is usually the the most important part, I think, of the process, and that is getting to know you. Uh, we call it the discovery process. Um, we're going to find out everything that you're trying to achieve in your life, and that's very unique to everybody. Um, you know, everybody's scenario is significantly different. So who are you? What are you trying to achieve? And what assets and resources do you have on hand to try and achieve those things? What's your savings rate, et cetera. And then uh, the second meeting is the analysis of the information you provided us. So where do you sit today? If you continue down the same path that you're on today, are you going to hit the destination that you told us you wanted to reach uh, in retirement or whatever that goal might be? And we're going to try and find out if, number one, if it's uh, feasible, if you're on the right path, and then what are some landmines or some crooks in the road that might affect you along the way. And then meeting number three, we address those. We call that the blueprint here. And the blueprint is, uh, you know, is your financial house in order? And are you on the right path? And what are some things that you may be overlooked? And how do we solve those problems? After meeting three, this is the time, really, Diane, where we decide whether or not we're a good fit for one another. So these three meetings have have really been a long interview process on both sides of the table to see if this is a a great relationship that's going to go for a long time. And then meeting number four is the engagement, and that is we decide we want to move forward.
2: And implement everything that you talked about.
0: Of course. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, every plan is good, but if you don't implement the plan, every plan is useless. So at some point, the rubber has to meet the road. Um, And and again, we're still figuring that out, step one through three, but by step four, we have a pretty darn good idea uh, what we want to do and if this makes sense to both parties and then we move forward. That's the paperwork party. It's the necessary evil. It's the minutiae, but no step uh, in the process is, is arguably more important.
2: To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. The number again is 614-364-7300. The website is aptuswealth.com. That's spelled A-P-T-U-S, wealth.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about your savings withdrawal strategy. I'm Diane Brennan, and this is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Peck.
1: We'll be back with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pitt at ninety-eight nine,
3: The Answer. 7,300 or visit aptuswealth.com.
1: Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300.
2: This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. This week, we're featuring some of the most memorable segments from all this year. Here's another listener favorite from the Aptis Audio Archives. Josh, with the recent volatility in the stock market, should retirees be looking at their savings withdrawal strategy? And what, what is that term, first of all, that those, for those of us that have never heard that?
0: Yeah, the, the general idea on savings withdrawals, there's two general uh, rules of thumb. Uh, and there's variants of, of, of both of these. But in general, it's either I look at the amount of money that I have to begin with, and just for round numbers and making it easy, let's say at a million dollars, and I'm going to withdraw 4% of that million dollars or $40,000 per year. And I'm not going to pay attention to what my balance is. I'm going to keep it at $40,000 per year adjusted for inflation. But the number is always going to be 40000 adjusted for inflation, regardless of what my portfolio value is worth. So it might be worth 800000 one year, and it might be worth $1.5 the next. But I'm going to keep my withdrawal at that 4, uh, 4% of what I started at. We call that a static approach or just a, a basic withdrawal approach. The second is I'm going to take out a percentage of what my portfolio is worth in that particular year. Usually not as commonly utilized uh, because as you can imagine, uh, let's say last year, your number was 4% of a million dollars, which is $40,000 a year. And then this year, the market pulls back dramatically. Or let's say we had a 2008 and you only have six or $700,000 if you were all invested in stocks. And now you're living on $28,000 a year. So, you know, from a practical perspective, usually a little less utilized. Either way, um, I think now is a, is a great time to revisit. I, I think it's always a good time to revisit your withdrawal strategy. But anytime you have a dramatic pullback, um, it's a great time to take a peek at, was I doing the right things to begin with? So the market has pulled back pretty close to where we started, uh, or at least within, you know. 10 points or so of where we started assuming that not everybody is completely 100 percent invested in the market hopefully you're seeing your balances climb back up close to where they started now might be a time to revisit that and it's a tremendous time one of the reasons why that's so important is anytime you invest in the market you have to mitigate what we call sequence of risk return and we've talked about this before it's something a little bit difficult to explain without a visual but sequence of risk is essentially saying I don't know what order my returns are going to come in. So uh, while I know that if I look at my mutual fund statement 20 years from now, it might tell me that I've averaged a 7% rate of return, and I'm really happy with that. My money's doubled twice over that period of time, and everything should have worked out well. When in reality, once you start taking money out of a fund, the order in which you receive your returns has as dramatic, if not more dramatic effect on your, uh, money lasting or running out, then your rate of return. So, for example, every time somebody comes into my office, Diane, I say, "Would you rather have a 10% rate of return or a 5% rate of return?" And everybody obviously, clearly says 10. 10. But, but that's not really. You don't have enough information to, to to pick. The the answer is, how am I getting to 10? In other words, can I not touch my money at all for 10 years until the end, in which case you would you couldn't live on anything, so that wouldn't work. Or what if the first year you lose half of your money and it doesn't come back to even for 10 years and then you get 20% rates of return after that, you might have went broke before you hit those big years. So consistency of returns, or at least a strategy that mitigates the volatility of the market is critical when you reach retirement. So think of it, an easy approach would be, think of it as buckets. I need to have a bucket that has less volatility for my income this year, but the bucket that I'm going to use for money 20 years from now can have a lot of volatility attached to it. And then I have all these different shades of gray in the middle to achieve the results. So you got to think about this not from just a, I'm 60, 40 stocks and bonds, but you got to think about it from a laddered income perspective and a laddered risk perspective to make sure you get rid of that sequence of return risk.
2: So if you're doing the laddered method, are you revisiting your savings withdrawal strategy as well? Or are you <laughs> just kind of remi- remembering to look at the big picture and it's going to take a while?
0: I think it's important to look at the big picture and and, and it's going to take a while. But there are two different, uh, getting back to that two schools of thought on the withdrawal strategy, there are different methods in the middle. So let's say, for example, that I say 4% makes you absolutely bulletproof. As long as you don't withdraw more than 4% of your money for the rest of your life, you're good. But you go, wait a second, I need more than 4%, but I can't work anymore for insert reason. So I have to be retired. Well, clearly I could say 4% all day long, but if that means you can't pay your mortgage. We're going to have to come up with a different strategy. So there are other strategies that you can bolster the amount of money that you withdraw. Now, that might dig into how much money you're going to leave to your kids, or we might have to use different instruments to protect against longevity. But there are different approaches, uh, and everybody's scenario is different, and you should absolutely revisit all the time, uh, at least annually. What is your withdrawal, uh, your withdrawal pattern? What does your trajectory look like? That's why we meet with clients twice a year. Not just to say, "Hey, how are the you know how's the family but uh, while that's important, but what has changed in your life? How is the strategy holding up? Are there adjustments that need to be made so if you haven't spoken to your financial advisor in two or three years or you just met with somebody that sold you a bunch of products that seemed to make sense at the time, and there's been no revisiting of that, it might be not a strategy at all. It might just be a hodgepodge of financial products that we threw against the wall, and we're hoping that that somehow self-evolves into a plan that's going to last for us. And unfortunately, that's not the way it works. So um, you should, particularly today, as we're entering into a period of we've already been through volatility, we don't know if that's going to stop, now is a time to make sure that your plan will hold up if this happens again.
2: And I encourage everyone, you know, whether they're looking for a new financial advisor or not, why don't they just why don't they meet with you and you can take a look and see if they're maximizing their retirement just to see if they're on the right track or not?
0: You know, if, if you went to the doctor and they said you need heart surgery, you probably wouldn't just take their word for it. You would get a second opinion. And for whatever reason, when it comes to our financial health uh, over the next 20 or 30 years of our life, we don't seem to do it that way. Uh, and I think that's critical. It's important. So I I highly recommend, just like you said, that you do that.
2: If you're concerned about the market and want to learn new strategies to manage your retirement risks, give Josh's office a call. There's no obligation. You can learn more about the Aptis Retirement Blueprint today. The number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Again, no cost and no obligation. Josh, to go along with more adjustments, some retirees are reducing uh, their contributions to the retirement plan during the COVID crisis. What's your opinion about that move?
0: Well, I would say blanketed statement. It's not a good idea, but let's step back first. Uh, If you've lost your job, clearly uh, you have bigger fish to fry right now, and that is providing for your family rather than saving for uh, a future goal. But let's assume that you have your job. Uh, Next questions would be, do I have a substantial emergency fund? Uh, if you have a, and what is a uh, substantial emergency fund general th- rule of thumb is six months uh, of income You know in today's environment, you may want to bolster that a little bit more You know, maybe you go to eight months just in case, but that's all going to be dependent upon your job, right? Um, and that brings me to my next question is that is how secure is your job uh, if you are a uh, You know a, a doctor uh, in general. That's been a pretty darn secure job if you're working in in the you know restaurant business, well, maybe a little less secure in today's environment. So do a little bit of analysis on your own, have a little uh, reality check with yourself and say, you know, my job is, is secure or less secure and then dictate, that'll dictate how much you should have in your emergency fund. But once we get past that, uh, the unfortunate part that I've seen over the years, and I've been doing this for, you know, 20 years, is in times of volatility and times of turmoil and times of pullbacks, Uh, we see people not contribute as much to their retirement accounts and not contribute as much into the market because the market looks like a scary place, when in reality, the whole adage of the market is buy low, sell high. Now, I don't know if we're going to have more volatility in the market. I would actually lean towards uh, we probably will have more, and we will have more pullbacks in the future, and that can be even scarier. But that does not mean it's a time to pull all of your money out of the market and quit putting money into your market. There will be more money made over the next 10 years um, than will be sitting in a checking account, that's for sure, by putting it into the stock market. So we see this time and time again, Diane, of, of people in terrible times, in times of uncertainty, stopping savings. And that is has a detrimental effect in the long run. Matter of fact, I saw a study recently that said that over half of Americans plan on changing their contributions. And the large chunk of that half was, I'm going to reduce my contributions. Well, you're potentially exacerbating a problem. You've had your retirement savings pulled back because of this volatility. Now is a time potentially to double down, bolster those savings, and watch that train ride back up. But that's not what people do. There's been numerous studies done on various mutual funds. One of the most famous was on the Fidelity Magellan Fund, run by a guy named Peter Lynch. and Tremendous returns over a two-decade period, over 12% average annual. The average investor inside of that account did less than 4%. And the reason for that was exactly what we're seeing right now. In times when there were pullbacks, people got out, and when it climbed back up, nobody wanted to miss the the great ride. Well, they bought at the top and they sold at the bottom. Uh, not necessarily the top and the bottom, but somewhere in the middle, and that gave them an average of 3.7%, uh, I believe, was the rate of return, average annual over 20 years, when if they would just would have closed their eyes, ignored it, and opened their eyes at the end, they would have got uh, north of 12% average annual over the period of time. So part of my job is to give people a historical perspective, give people the facts, so that their emotions don't get in the way of their future. And when we act emotionally when it comes to money, we usually make the wrong decision. So... If you have a financial advisor and they're not reaching out to you, reach out to them or reach out to somebody else. But now is a time where you should be gaining guidance from whoever it is you trust in the financial world to help guide you through this path and make sure you don't make irrational decisions.
2: So I have a friend who, during this uh, pandemic, got into a little bit of debt, so her work ended, had to use credit cards, so now there's a little bit of, to survive. Now there's a little bit of debt. Do you, say, pay off the debt first or invest, or can you do both at the same time? What's what's the yeah, best route?
0: So I think the easy answer um, is you should always pay off high-interest debt first. That's the mathematical answer is I have a credit card that I'm paying 20% interest on or whatever that is, and I get $5,000 balance, I should pay that off. And that's the mathematical answer. But in my experience, i found that people, and you have to have a, a, your own you know kind of reality check on this, if you've been holding credit card balances off and on over the years repetitiously, chances are if you pay it off, you're going to rack it back up again. Certain people just use credit cards as a revolving you know, line of credit, which what it, is what it is for quote-unquote emergencies. If you never hold a credit card balance and this is an anomaly for you, then by all means, pay it off. You know yourself better than I do. Mathematically, that makes sense. But in my uh, experience, people should do both because more than likely that balance will be paid off and it will be added to again. And I don't want to sound uh, pessimistic about, you know, the way people handle their money, but it just seems to be the way that it is. So I think you should be very aggressive in paying off that debt But you should also balance that out with uh, some savings for the future. But the Aptis Retirement
2: Blueprint process, Uh, meeting one is the discovery. It's all about getting to know each other. Aptis wants to learn about your goals, including any ideas and what you believe could stand in your way. Meeting two is analysis. The second meeting is about educating you as to where you sit financially and whether you're currently on track to reach your desired destination. Josh will also identify areas of concern and items that could be improved to better safeguard you against unforeseen financial landmines. Then meeting three is the blueprint. Aptus shows you how to make sure your financial arrow hits the bullseye. They show you how to minimize the impact of taxes, plan for inflation and interest rate changes, mitigate risk, and the appropriate blend of investments for your individual goals. And then it's implementation. It might be the most important day as no plan achieves its objectives if it's not put into motion. Today is filled with the necessary minutiae of paperwork, but it's also a time where all details are reviewed, again, to ensure you are completely comfortable with each decision that you are making about your future. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. 614-364-7300. The website is aptuswealth.com, spelled A-P-T-U-S, When we come back, Social Security, some information you need to know. I'm Diane Brennan. You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick.
1: Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300.
2: This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. This week we're featuring some of the most memorable segments from all this year. Here's another listener favorite from the Aptus Audio Archives. Josh, I've seen some articles that talk about Social Security saying there might not be a cost of living adjustment. Is that something that we should be concerned about?
0: I believe yes, uh, because I think, you know, if we look historically over the last five to 10 years, you you know, the argument could be made that cost of living adjustments have not been as necessary because inflation has not been as significant. I would tend to argue that point uh, because the way that cost of living is calculated may not be as accurate as we'd like it to be. For example, when you retire, the main Uh, costs of living that you have are things like uh, buying a car, food, groceries, etc. The cost of, you know, increases in housing if you own a house, really pretty irrelevant to you, particularly if your house is paid off. So it depends on what your life looks like and what your expenses are, of course. But if we have a, let's just take a typical person or or I'll just throw out some uh, information on a, a hypothetical person. Let's say that, you have a small pension you have social security and then you have uh, some sort of 401k and your pension does not take into account a cost of living adjustment and social security's uh cost of living adjustment is potentially forecasted to be lagging what reality is that means your 401k has to make up the difference for those other two assets so if you're getting a thousand from one a thousand from another and then you're hoping to get a thousand from your 401k your 401k is going to get the blunt of that stress you couple that with this perfect storm of where we're living a lot longer than uh, you know 40 years ago, so it's very conceivable that the average person is going to have a 20 plus year retirement. Well, and if cost of living is only three percent, then 24 years from now you're going to need twice as much money as you do today. So if we take that same scenario, two two thirds of your income is coming from stuff that's not going to keep up with inflation. That means one third has to keep keep up with not only itself. But, for the two thirds on the other side, so it can put a strain on the on the system, and we also need to have some sort of plan in place that will protect against that longevity issue so I think it's something that we absolutely have to take into account. Something we talk about in my office all the time is one of the biggest risks to retirement these days is simply longevity you know if we If we knew that our retirement was only going to last ten years, financial planning would be very easy it 's the unknown of is it going to be ten years or forty years that makes it very difficult. And I have yet to meet anybody that says if I do make it to 80, I want to make sure that I'm broke and I get kicked out of my house. We want to make sure that we have money now and then. So uh, the plan has to go into account. You know, th- to put it in even simpler terms, if you look at the average person and let's say they're uh, they're collecting $1,500 a month out of Social Security, which is about average um, over their lifetime. Uh, if you look at a male, they're going to end up collecting you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, if you look at the cost of living adjustment, it almost raises that by 50%. So if you take out the cost of living adjustment, you're talking about a potential reduction of close to $100,000 over your lifetime. And that's only off of $1,500 a month. So extrapolate that over, well, now all of my assets, are, I want them to provide me $5,000 a month. We're talking about giant, giant numbers here. We have to have a plan in place to accommodate for that. So if you don't have a plan in place for accommodate for that, highly recommend you contact somebody who can help you through the process.
2: So why are we at risk for there not being a cost of living adjustment? Can you get into more details about that?
0: I think there's a couple of reasons. One, uh, Social Security has proven that uh, they have a fancy way of, of recalculating how cost of living adjustments are even calculated. So the way cost of living adjustments are calculated today is not the same as the way they were calculated 40 years ago. So it's sometimes difficult to compare... How Social Security has kept up with inflation based upon history because history s- tends to be rewritten. The other fact, though, is we hear all the time from everybody that Social Security is underfunded. Well, there's several ways that we're going to have to address that, or there's several options that we can address that with. Number one, we reduce benefits. Number two, um, you know, maybe we reduce cost of living adjustments is one of them. And then we can go on to a whole host of other ones, right? But cost of living adjustment would certainly be a way for government behind the scenes to reduce the amount of money they have to pay out in social security without flat out coming out and saying to the masses, we are going to reduce benefits. It's much easier uh, politically, I would assume to come out and say, well, you know, the cost of living uh, didn't go up as much as we had originally calculated. So we're just going to pay out this amount. So, and I, I'm, you know, coming up with some uh, some guesses here, but I think that will be an area that's potentially going to be under attack moving forward. So you have to be cautious and not just bank on the fact that Social Security will continue to m- pace with inflation. We don't know that to be the case. And at some point, uh, some politician or someone in government is going to have to address the fact that Social Security uh, needs to be fixed. Uh, we, we've already heard the numbers, right? We're going to run out of money. Social Security is going to run out of money social security retirement uh, consistently is utilized to help fund social security disability you know that will have to be addressed or that strain will kill it on its own there's a lot of problems Diane with social security that need to be addressed and i think one of the low hanging fruits is attack cost of living adjustments so you have to calculate that or take it have a contingency plan if in fact that occurs
2: You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, you can give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. The website is aptuswealth.com. That's spelled A-P-T-U-S, wealth.com. So sticking with Social Security, I mean, do we even count on it when we're planning for retirement and if we do get it, it's a bonus. How, how do we look, How should we look at that?
0: <laughs> no, that's a good question. I get that a lot from young folks, too, you know, particularly people that are in their 30s and 40s. And everybody that comes in says, I don't want to plan on Social Security. Um, when in reality, I, you know, and, and I'm guessing here, Diane, obviously, uh, but it's, an, it's a pretty educated guess. Social Security, in my estimation, will, in fact, be there. I think we can count on it. It's a matter of what will it look like. And there's a lot of changes that we've heard, um, some of them more scary than others. But I think, you know, we just addressed one, and that's a silent killer, we call it, and that's inflation. You know, the silent killer of inflation can absolutely devastate a retirement plan if it's not taken into account. And if Social Security doesn't keep up with that, then that's certainly a challenge that we have to address. But some of the other you know, huge risks that I don't think face retirees that are current retirees or people who are quickly approaching retirement, but maybe the, the younger uh, you know, crew, myself included, uh, people in their 40s, maybe early 50s, is what will it look like? And there's been a lot, a lot of uh, you know, proposals as to what we're going to do to change it. The one probably the most scary is something called means testing. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard of means testing before, Diane, but uh, means testing is one I hear uh, across the board. And that is, let's look at the assets that you have to provide for your retirement. Let's look at the income that you're able to generate for your retirement. And then the argument is Social Security was there to provide a base level of income. It's actually called a primary insurance amount. It's supposed to insure you against being impoverished and destitute. And clearly, if you're living on you know $10,000 a month, you're not impoverished or destitute, so you don't get Social Security. You don't need it, and that's means testing. That one being you know, probably the most terrifying is the government being able to decide whether or not you are owed or due uh, the funds that you paid in throughout your entire working career, and then all the way down to, you know, we're just going to make some alterations to the, the time frame in which you can collect, and then everything in the middle. All of these things, I think your first question was, you know, should we count on it? I think you can count on it as being an asset or a resource. The question, the real question, I think, is when can you count on it and what will it look like? So you have to have contingency plans for, well, currently my full retirement age is 67, but what if you know I'm not going to retire for another 20 or 25 years, potentially? What's the retirement age going to be then? What if I want to retire at 67, but my new retirement age is 71? What do I do today to protect myself against that risk and being, I don't want to be forced to work till 71. I still want to retire at 67. So what can I do today to protect against that? These are the questions that I think we need to be asking ourselves, or what if social security becomes taxable differently than it is today? So we have to make some educated guesses. They're not going to be perfect. Financial planning is is certainly math, part math, part science, right? We have to make some uh, educated guesses and then and then live by those guesses but certainly financial planning is not just buying a bunch of financial products crossing your fingers hoping that the way it is today continues tomorrow and we'll cross that bridge when we get there that's not a plan so uh, long-winded answer to your question but i think we can count on it It's just what does it look like
2: speaking of things we can count on Reverse mortgages used to get a really bad rap. Are more people considering their homes as a a source for their retirement income?
0: Uh, I think they are. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to see people coming back around the turn. And I think you're right. They got a horrible rap. And that's because, quite frankly, it was the Wild West. I mean, it was uh, high commission. Um, Anybody basically could write a reverse mortgage. You could pay people across the board. It's going to, you know, trust work used to be this way back in the day as well. You'd have shared relationships, arrangements between attorneys and financial advisors, insurance agents, et cetera, where they were getting pick, paid on both sides. So people would encourage everybody to buy, uh, trusts whether they needed them or not. And then it flipped over to the reverse mortgage side and everybody should have a reverse mortgage, whether it makes sense or not. And now all of those things have been heavily regulated. So, uh, in this instance, regulation made a lot of sense. Um, and I think that you're able to utilize your house as an income stream, or at least remove your, uh, having to make the payment in a lot of instances. Now there's criteria, Diane, and we can dive into it if you want, but there's criteria of, you know, you have to have a certain amount of equity in your house. You have to be a certain age. You have to play by some, by some rules. There's, um, you know, some education that you have to go through, but it can be a viable asset for people. And what do I mean by an asset that we can utilize? Well, one, we, we can utilize our house in two in two ways. Uh, one, let's say that you have a, a $400,000 house you only owe $100,000 on it, but you're making payments based upon your original loan of you know three or $400,000. Well, you can essentially eliminate your payment. So would that be helpful if you could eliminate a $1,000 or $2,000 a month payment from your income requirement, still continue to live in the house, and then when you pass away, obviously that note has to be repaid plus interest, but you are not giving up your house to the bank so it's not, I now still have $200,000 in equity in my house and the bank gets to keep it. That's not the way that it works. So it's a way to get cash flow back by simply not making your payment. The other way is getting cash out of your house if you already don't have a payment. So let's say same scenario, we have a $400,000 house and I decide that I'd really like extra income. I don't have a payment, but it'd be nice to have 1000 or $2,000 a month being paid back to me for a period of time. You can actually take out almost like an annuity payment paying back to you, and in many instances, actually just a lump sum payment. So you can take that money to you know, buy a car or help your kids, uh, your grandkids with a college education, whatever, and you never have to pay that back until you pass away, still absolutely uh, allowed to live in the home until the day you die, no risk of getting kicked out of the house. So th- there's a bunch of different ways that you can use, in many instances, people's biggest asset that's literally just laying there dormant.
2: More from the best of the Aptus Retirement Blueprint radio show with Josh Pick after this.
3: When we come back, the 80% rule. 7300 or visit AptisWealth.com.
2: This is the Aptis Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. This week, we're featuring some of the most memorable segments from all this year. Here's another listener favorite from the Aptis Audio Archives. I saw an article talking about the 80% rule. Can we go over that? What is it? Is it still relevant?
0: You know, I'm actually really glad you asked that question because this one's bothered me for years. Um, You know, I do seminars and and workshops and and I always ask the question, how much money do you need to retire on? And and invariably people raise their hand and say 80 percent or 90 percent or some arbitrary number that really doesn't correlate to them. But somebody on CNBC must have said and and the real rule was called the 80 percent rule. And the 80 percent rule is just this. Take what you're making currently gross. So if I'm making one hundred thousand dollars a year gross income, I need eighty thousand dollars a year to live on in retirement. And that is just simple. It's a good rule of thumb. So it gives people a number to shoot for. But it is simply eliminating or avoiding so many factors that could apply to your scenario that are just absolutely pertinent. It just doesn't apply. Let me give an example. Let's say that I I make $300,000 a year and I currently live on $4,000 a month do I need 80% of $300,000 a year to live on $4,000 a month? Clearly not. Matter of fact, there was a study recently, uh, thankfully, that proved uh, what I've been saying over the years, and that is the higher you go up in income, the less percentage typically you need. So if you make a $1 million a year, you do not need 80% of what you're making along the way. You need a much smaller percentage. Matter of fact, I believe the study said that as you climb over $100,000 worth of income, you start to go down to closer to a 50 or 60% Uh, need. But I would even say that's irrelevant. Um, Let me give you an example. If you're making $100,000 a year, you're paying into social security taxes, and you're also paying income taxes, and you're also saving into a 401k. So let's say you're saving 10% of your 401k, your social security taxes are about another 7%, and then you're paying at least another 12% in taxes. Well, 12 plus 7, let's just say 20 plus 10 is 30. I figured out a way to get rid of 30%. And then let's say that you have to go buy your own health insurance. And the list just kind of goes on and on. Oh, by the way, I'm saving 200 bucks a, a pay into a savings account, and all of a sudden you say I'm supposed to be making eight grand a month, but my take home every two weeks is only 1,500. Well, clearly you don't need 80. You don't need 80,000 dollars a year to live on. Now, the flip side of that is, is is almost as true in reverse, though, and that is if you're living on 30,000 dollars a year, you probably do need that amount of money, or maybe even more sometimes when we take into account health risks. Or health costs in the long run. Uh, you need a higher percentage than that 80% potentially. So it's very important. And a good rule of thumb, I think a good way to start is what hits your checking account every two weeks or twice a month. Is that what you're actually living on? And in most instances, it is unless there's other sources of income. But if that number is $5,000 a month, I don't care what your gross is your real number that you need to live on in retirement is what you're actually living on today as long as you're comfortable living on what you're living on today. So the 80% rule, throw it out the window. And the reason I really hate that rule, Diane, is in most instances it makes the amount of money that you would need to save so terrifying and insurmountable that certain people, uh, you know, if they're faced with an insurmountable goal in their mind, throw their arms up and say, I'm not even going to try because there's no way I'll hit that target. When in reality it's probably an unrealistic target anyway. It probably is not necessary. And there's many times that I have people come into my office that say, well, you know, I did some math, and I know that I'm supposed to have $4 million saved to retire. And I ask them why, and they tell me the 80% rule, and when in reality it was a fraction of that number, and they can more than likely, many of them can retire today, and they're just blown away. And it's because the number is just arbitrary. So anytime you hear these rules or these uh, blanketed statements in my arena of finance, Take them with a grain of salt. They're just general rules that somebody touts for a particular reason, probably for a reason that benefits them.
2: All right. 80% rule, dead to me. Let's move on. You're good, listening good. <laughs> You're listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. The website is aptuswealth.com, A P T U S .com Josh, are there other sources of retirement income that we should be looking at or considering that maybe isn't mainstream? Yeah,
0: you know, I think you addressed one Diane just uh, just a few minutes ago, and that's your house. You know uh, we haven't had good options up until recently, and I'm by no means a huge proponent of reverse mortgages, but uh, reverse mortgages really weren't a viable option until the last five or ten years or so. Um, your house is a great source of income. So, you know, let's say you have a great, you know, you've paid off your house, you have this beautiful home that you'd love to live in, but whether it's maintenance or or tax bills or just simple cash flow is preventing you from staying there, you can utilize that as a resource uh, to provide additional income back into the pot. So that's number one. Uh, Number two is businesses or getting a part-time job. You know, you can look at it either way, but with the advent of the Internet, it's amazing how easy it is to start a business today. Uh, you know, we've all been on you know, Etsy and all these different websites. I have tons of uh, retired uh, clients that you know, make, make an extra few thousand bucks a year doing their hobby, uh, whether that's you know, making picture frames and selling them on Etsy or w- whatever it is. Uh, I, I, it's amazing what people's interests are and what they're able to achieve uh, by selling those. I, I have a client that makes canes. You know, it's just he's into making, uh, he's into woodworking, makes canes, makes, uh, you know, some extra money on the side. So that's a very viable option. Don't discount that. And then also, um, you know, part-time work. The first question that comes out of my mouth when when people retire is, what are you going to do? And they go, well, I'm not going to go to work anymore. Uh, Okay, but what are you going to do? Because if you're going to sit in front of the TV or you say, I like to golf, uh, if it's only one thing and there's no structure in your life, uh, it gets old real fast, has been my experience, and I'm not saying this applies to everybody, but in general, the clients that I've seen, uh, they get bored real fast. I have several clients that have retired many, many times over because of this exact reason. So, getting a part-time job or that that business, not only does it add income back into the pot, but it gives you you know purpose in your life, gives you something to wake up for, gives you something to stay on task, structure in your life to do. So, I think you know your home, uh, and then a, a business or a part-time job, and then the third one that's a uh, Uh, kind of an anomaly uh, that I'm seeing more and more until COVID, you know, COVID kind of changed the game on this, but uh, your car, Uh, tons of clients that are doing Uber. Uh, And the the predominant reason is not just money. It's, it's interesting. And I get to meet interesting people. You see this all over the country. Every time I, I travel, I, you know, whether I'm in Arizona or Florida and I order an Uber, you meet some of the most interesting people. And a lot of them, are retired and doing it, not because they necessarily need the money, just for something to do, people to talk to. So uh, fortunately, that also adds money back into the, into the pot uh, and helps them along the way if they're a little bit short on cash. So there's three very easy ways, and I'm sure if, if you put some thought into it, you could come up with a lot more than I haven't thought of, but those are three quickies.
2: Well, the key that you say, you know, it's one thing about taking care of your finances, but it's really your mental health too in retirement. That sense of purpose, and I think with the pandemic that hit us, and a lot of us that were stuck at home and or not able to work you i'm 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 going to be terrible in retirement that i've learned over the last 2 months so that sense of purpose is huge for uh people staying you know healthy and happy during their retirement
0: for sure for sure i i've seen it across the board you have to have hobbies whatever those hobbies are you have to stimulate you know somebody came and told me once that you have to you have to stimulate uh, your body, meaning you got to exercise. You got to do something. You got to stimulate your brain by having something. You got to learn something. Whether that's, you know, here at Ohio State, uh, I don't know if they, I, with the pandemic, obviously can't do it, but you could uh, go take classes for free. So you could sit down on college cat classes just for free. I have tons of clients that do that, just to keep their brain stimulated. And then the last one that they told me, and you know, I, I take advice from people who have been doing this a lot longer than I have, is you got to stimulate your your feeling of giving back in some capacity. So that's, you know, whether that's charity or whatever it means to you to give back. But if you don't have that plan in place, it's absolutely as valuable as your financial life, or you will sit in the basement bored out of your mind and your body will, will start to feel the toll.
2: Absolutely. Another thing I want to talk to you about is couples. So I don't think a lot have the conversation. They just assume how each other are going to spend money in retirement and they're not necessarily on the same page. <laughs> yeah. So, how important is that to discuss with your clients that they need to have this conversation sooner rather than later?
0: Yeah, I often say I'm, I'm part-time mathematician and part-time uh, marriage counselor. Sometimes, um, because oftentimes the conversations that I have with clients are the first time they've ever had them.
2: Right. Uh, I can imagine. And you'll, see,
0: you'll see one look at the other and almost in disbelief. <laughs> uh, but it's but it's it's critical and, for sure. You know, sometimes it's it's good to have that with a third party in the room. And sometimes uh, I hear this often, you know, I always wanted to ask this question, but I didn't want to feel stupid and I didn't want my, my partner to, you know, talk down to me or whatever that might be because, you know, money is an emotional thing and people have very strong opinions of it. Uh, I can be that voice of reason to say that's really not a stupid question. It is a question that needs to be addressed um, and it's a very valid point. So let's get it out in the open and, and talk about it. Uh, so hopefully I can, I can help along that path.
2: And couples don't discuss, you know, what do you plan on doing in retirement? They just think that they're going to take their current hobbies and keep doing them. Meanwhile, the other person might want to go travel or has planned for different things like that where the other person had absolutely no idea.
0: For sure. Yep. Happens all the time. And travel is a big one, a very large one.
2: Where one likes to go all over and the other one's like, no, I'm good on the, I'm good on the sofa. I'm not going anywhere.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I see that uh, all the time. Or, or where they want to travel. That's another one. You know, I really like going to the beach and and she likes going to the mountains or wherever it is and then we can't agree on where we want to go. So if we can't agree, I'm not gonna waste the money going there. You know, these are these are conversations we should probably have or I wanna buy a retirement uh place or uh you know, I wanna I wanna buy a sailboat and go from Maine to Florida and the other person hates the water.
2: Any questions that couples can give to each other to start that conversation now?
0: Yeah, I think I think number one is you just have a frank conversation, you say we're quickly approaching retirement. Um, You know, we've always talked about kind of peripherally that these are going to be our our great golden years and how great is it going to be when we don't work but what are we going to do? What does that mean for you? And if you don't feel comfortable having that conversation without a third party in the room to kind of act as a buffer, then by all means, come on in, let's do it. I've had the conversation a million times. But you just have to start the conversation that conversation, quite frankly, might take a matter of years. You might hear, and I hear this often too, I don't have the slightest idea what I want to do. I might never retire because I don't know what I want to do. So maybe the conversation will help the person um, find more enjoyment in their life by saying, these are things that I've actually thought about a lot and I'd like to do them. And now it makes sense for me to start aiming more towards retirement.
2: Great show, Josh. Thank you everyone for joining us for this week's edition of the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan to learn strategies to manage risk in this new economy and to schedule your complimentary customized planning session, or if you'd like to take the Aptus Blueprint Challenge and the Aptus Blueprint Challenge, you schedule a 15 minute call with Josh to get a second opinion on how your portfolio is doing. When you do, Josh will give you a $25 gift card to support our local community. The number to call is 614-364-7300. Again, it's 614 614- The website, if you'd like to do it that way, is aptuswealth.com. It's spelled A-P-T-U-S, wealth.com. And this challenge is really effective with portfolios of $250,000 and up. And it is a limit of one per household. Thank you so much again for joining us. Have a great week.
1: You've been listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with host Josh Pick. Josh helps guide his clients through retirement by managing risk instead of chasing returns. He calls it a blueprint, and you can get started at no cost or obligation. Give the team at Aptus Wealth a call today to schedule your consultation at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Or online at aptuswealth.com. That's aptuswealth.com. To learn strategies to manage risk in the new economy, join us again next weekend right here at 98.9 The Answer. Any comments regarding safe and secure investments and guaranteed income streams refer only to fixed insurance products. They do not refer in any way to securities or investment advisory products. Fixed insurance and annuity product guarantees are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing company.